0: You know, we sing those words, and today is Palm Sunday. On this Palm Sunday, we celebrate the king entering into Jerusalem. In fact, the crowds are gathered, and I want you to hear this text, Matthew chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, as the crowds, they proclaim the praise of this king. Verse 8 says, most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest let's stop right there go ahead and have a seat now these these are the classic words these are the traditional words that we use on a on this traditional day, this Palm Sunday. This Palm Sunday is the day that we remember Jesus and his entrance into Jerusalem the week before he is crucified. And this this is, uh, honestly, it's been on my radar to preach this one message for a number of weeks now. You know, we've been walking through Ephesians and I knew I had kind of a gap week right here. And so this is what was on target. But but I want to tell you, this whole week I've been wrestling with whether or not this is the right message for our church today. And the reason why is because, like you, on Monday, I, I saw the heartbreaking news. The heartbreaking news about Covenant Christian School in Nashville, Tennessee. You hear the story of three little kids and then three teachers murdered, three adults. And uh, I don't know about you, I, I was just grieved all week. I found my mind going back to it over and over again. I found myself praying more and more. I found myself honestly just like at times just sitting back and thinking about the world that we live in. I mean, we, we use that phrase, the world we live in, but, but how often do we just like slow down and think about the reality of this world and the darkness in this world? And like you, I followed the news coverage and I, I saw how just like on the turn of a dime, it became an issue of politics and so I started hearing about those who wanted to have politics around gun rights and how that works, and I started hearing about those who wanted to have, you know, they wanted to make it into a political issue about those who think they can switch their, their God-given gender, and, and all of this, this tumult and all of this turmoil about all of these debates and all of these issues, right? And, and I just, I'm thinking, man, may, maybe I just need to preach this weekend, and maybe I need to preach this weekend about a biblical view of self-defense, or maybe i need to preach this weekend about a biblical view of of sexuality and when you get that wrong how it how it messes with your mind and messes with your heart and i'm wrestling with it and i'm i'm working through this but the whole time i keep thinking about jesus and his kingdom we're just saying jesus in his kingdom his kingdom is forever this morning i'm not going to preach about one of those political agendas This morning, I'm not going to talk about biblical sexuality or biblical self-defense. This morning, I'm not even going to delve into the darkness that is sin and the way it corrupts our world. This morning, based on this text, I want to ask you to consider what you expect of Jesus. Sometimes I think we, we expect things of Christ that maybe we aren't fair to expect of him. I mean... Do you expect your life to be safe, protected from violence, and protected from evil? Do do you expect your life to be easy? That you've come to Jesus, and because you've come to Jesus, he is going to make life work out exactly how you have planned it. Do, do Do you expect the world to love you? Do you expect the world around you to to appreciate you and to to think highly of you? See, all of these questions I I ask you, because here's my big idea today. And this idea, actually, we're going to see reflected in, in those words we just read when the crowds gather around Jesus and they cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Here is the big idea. It is easy to have the wrong expectations of Jesus. You realize how easy it is to have the wrong expectations of Jesus? Later today, I'm going to ask you what your expectations are of him. I'm going to ask you to prayerfully be introspective and to think through what it actually is you expect of him. But before we do that, I want to work through this first century text in the expectation of the crowds. The crowds that gathered before Christ and after Christ. The crowds that swarmed him. And the crowds that cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. To do this, I want to ask you, if you have not done so already, will you open up your Bible? Would you find Matthew chapter 21? We're going to pick up in verse 1. And what we're going to do with this text today is we're going to begin by looking at this this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, this this kingly, this royal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. We're going to see how there's a preparation for his entrance. We're going to see, we're going to look at this prophecy of his entrance, and I think your mind is going to be, you're going to marvel at the prophecy around this, and then we're going to see their praises, and, and ultimately we're going to look at the expectations they had of Christ. Matthew chapter 21. I want to read for you verses eight through nine or verses one through nine. Let's just let this whole story just be clear in our mind. Here's the text. It says, now when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they and excuse me and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest well let's begin this journey the journey begins here with a with a preparation of Jesus. We see this preparing for the king's entrance. I won't read it again, but the way the, the, the king's entrance is prepared is Jesus sends two of his disciples to this town as they're passing through. He says, I want you to go and find this this, this foal. I want you to go find this 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 cult that has never been ridden. And, and I want you to bring it to me along with its mother. He says, if, if the owner has any problem with that, I want you just to simply say the master or the Lord has need of it, and then he will let you come. And, and so this is the preparation. Jesus sends them on the way. Now, we can read through this, and we can just see the narrative moving forward, and we can just kind of like almost like gloss over it really quickly. But, but I want us to notice two things before we really even deep, dive deeply into this. But here's what I want us to notice first and foremost. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and Jesus, he, he is dedicated to his mission uh, Jesus is a man on a mission. You, you guys know, like after church, if you have some errands to run, you, or you know, sometimes after church, I'm really hungry, and it's like, you know, we're talking, and I'm like, okay, I'm a man, and I'm going, I'm gonna go get some food, right? You ever have those moments when you are just completely on a mission for whatever it is that you have to do? Well, Jesus, this is exactly what's going on with him. He is a man on a mission. But the question is, what is his mission? Is his mission that he's going to Jerusalem so he can share in the Passover dinner and have a great time with his 12 closest disciples? Is that his mission? Is he simply going there to, to take place in the traditional worship during the Passover when they remember Egypt, the slavery of Israel in Egypt, and God rescuing them from that? No, Jesus is a man on a mission, and his mission is, get this, his mission is to die. He's told the disciples that three times in the last few chapters. Matthew chapter sixteen, verse twenty one, says: From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things from the elders and the and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed on on the third day be raised. Matthew chapter seventeen, verses twenty two through twenty three. It says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man, this is one of Jesus' titles for himself. This is talking about his Messiahship. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. One chapter before the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, look at this, he took the twelve disciples aside. Oh, Jesus is traveling with an entourage, there's other people around. But as he's, he's he's making that final approach to Jerusalem, he takes the 12 and he pulls them aside. Hey guys, come here, come here, just just us, just, just us for a minute. Verse 18, this is what he says to them. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered. Over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is on a mission. Jesus' court course is set before him. He 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 knows exactly what he is doing. And as he enters in, as he's preparing to enter in, I want you to see that even in this, Jesus, he's, he's displaying his lordship. Not only is he on a mission, but Jesus, he's making it clear that he is the Lord. He sends disciples ahead. These disciples, they have almost like this, this secret mission, it feels like. They go ahead, and they find this, this colt, and they find the donkey, and they, they start to take it, and they, they're prepared with the answer that the Lord has need of it. And that's like the secret pass where they know that wh- whoever owns these animals, they're going to be sent. Why? Because Jesus, not because, not because he's asking. He says, the Lord... The Lord, the master, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king entering into Jerusalem where he is to rule and reign. Well, we see, the, we see the stage set. We see this preparation for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem. But now the plot thickens. The plot thickens with some prophecy. And at first glance, this prophecy might not be the most amazing, but, but I want to show you this is incredible. What we see next then is, is the prophecy of the king's entrance. The text says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So it says this took place to fulfill. This is part of God's preparation. These words were prophesied in the Old Testament, and Jesus, he fulfills all of the prophecy perfectly about who the Messiah is. Verse 5: Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a beast of burden. Now, Jesus here, he's fulfilling this prophecy, and this prophecy is spoken to the daughters of Zion. This is really a prophecy that's meant to be to the nation of Israel. This is the prophecy that they have waited centuries and generations for as they have waited for their Messiah to come. This is all of Israel's hope has been built on. Someday this Messiah will come. And Jesus here, he's saying, this is how the Messiah is to enter into Jerusalem. And this is the prophecy that he's going to enter in on this, on this foal or on this colt. Jesus' kingship, what you see then is, first of all, it's humble. I mean, if you and I were to write this story, we would have Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a war horse, right? I mean, we would find the biggest and the meanest and most majestic looking stallion that we could find, and Jesus would be placed up on that thing, and he wouldn't have these rugged old cloaks of these disciples that had been walking around mile after mile. We would have him robed in the, the finest royal attire. This is this is the difference between maybe driving up in a brand new Chevy Silverado 250, right, or 2, 2500 like this, just got the works, versus driving up in like a little Geo Metro, right? Like, what what would you expect the king to drive in on? But Jesus comes in on this, on this foal. In fact, this animal's not even trained yet. The, the, the donkey comes along with it. The, the mother donkey comes along with it. Why? Because if the animal doesn't have the mom there, because it hasn't had a rider before, because it's untrained, it's going to be skittish. And so look, Jesus comes in riding on this untrained beast. And to make it even more clear, this is a beast of burden. This is a work animal. Not a majestic royal animal. Jesus, his, his prophetic kingship, it's it's humble. It's humble. It's because his purpose, we're gonna see his purpose is is humble. But not only is we we see that this is humble, but I want us to understand this, this kingship was promised. It was promised. It's been promised in multiple different passages. We, we could spend weeks and weeks just talking about prophecy about Christ and the fulfillment that Christ makes of, of Old Testament prophecy. This passage in particular, it's quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this original words. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of, Jer- of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a drunk donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the prophecy that Jesus fulfills when he rides into Jerusalem. And I recognize this is the kind of prophecy that, you know what? Just about anyone could accomplish this, right? I was talking to someone between services. They were like, hey, you know what? Anyone could like be, you know, go find a a donkey and its baby and ride into Jerusalem and say, hey, guess what, guys? I'm riding a donkey. I'm the Messiah, right? Like this might not seem like the most, I guess, uh, prophetic thing in the world. The, The point here is how he enters in. Not the exclusivity of, of, of this moment. But how he enters in. But then you take that you combine it with the other prophecies. I'm going to give you one more this morning. I'm going to give you one more that I, I think should make your jaw drop to the floor with the way Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. This prophecy comes out of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Now Daniel chapter 9 is, it is a, it's a heavy prophetic passage. In Daniel chapter nine, there is prophecy about Jesus, there is prophecy about his being cut off or his crucifixion. There is prophecy about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Remember, at that time, Daniel is writing this, and he is writing this as an exile because Jerusalem has been sacked and, and ravaged and it has been destroyed. So the, the prophecy that Daniel receives is a prophecy that is given when Jerusalem is in, it's in rubble. It's been destroyed. This prophecy also includes words about the Antichrist, which we won't get into too deeply today. Mike looked disappointed. We're not going to go there today. But I want us to see how this prophecy is fulfilled, actually, in Jesus and his entry entry into Jerusalem. Let me read this text for you. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. The, The prophecy that Daniel receives, he says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people, about the Jewish people, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. This is talking about the completed work of Jesus Christ and the consummation of all things when Jesus' work is completed entirely. Verse twenty-five it says know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem time out this is talking about a historic date this is actually talking about a moment that you can mark on your calendar that this prophecy says that there is going to be a moment when there is a declaration to rebuild Jerusalem that's what it says from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem until when to the coming of the anointed one, a prince. This is talking about Jesus. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built, up, built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Here it is. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and sh- shall have nothing. I'll explain this to you in just a moment. And then, and... The people of the prince, this is the Antichrist, the second one, the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This is talking about the rebuilding, and then again, the, the, the destruction again of Jerusalem. This is talking about this moment when Jerusalem, there's a declaration that it is going to be built. Now let me let me introduce you to this passage by explaining a few things. When this is talking about weeks, this is prophetically speaking about what, what we call weeks of years. It's not just talking about straight weeks. It's like, hey, what are you doing this week? This is talking about weeks of years. So a week of years is it's seven years, right? It would be seven years. And so you have seven weeks are seven weeks of years. And notice when this this clock, if you were to take a a stopwatch, notice when the clock begins. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, it says, That from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. See, Daniel's prophesying about a moment when there is going to be a decree for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. That decree happened. That decree happened. Nehemiah chapter 2 describes the moment that decree happens. King Artaxerxes, the the Persian king, he made a declaration to restore and rebuild not just the wall, but the city of Jerusalem. That, that, That day is a day marked by researchers and historians in history. The date that that happened, historians say, is March 14th, 445 B.C. 445 years before Jesus Christ and his birth. There, there was this declaration for, for the, the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Now, let me, let, let me do some little bit of math with you. If you were to take that seven-week period plus that 62-week period, this is talking about 69 weeks in total. 69 weeks of years. So that would be 69 times seven years each, which equals 483 years. Now, if you take that 483 years and you figure out, you count the number of days that would be based on the calendar that was used for the Persians when Daniel prophesied, you would take a 360, not a 365-day year, but a 360-day year. That's the the calendar they used when this prophecy was given. And you would get a total of 173,880 days. If you were to take March March 14th, 445 B.C., And if you were to add to that day 173, 880 days, you would get the date, just do all the calculations, just count every day on the calendar, right? Just on your free time. There are people that do this, though, actually. And here's the date that you would land at, April the 6th, A.D. 32. April the 6th, A.D. 32. Now turn with me to the New Testament. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 3, we discover that Jesus begins his ministry. His public ministry, he begins in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Historians would mark this date, this year, this year would be AD 29. This is the year that Jesus begins his earthly ministry Now, this ministry begins, and we know as we read the Gospels, that during Jesus' ministry, he celebrates three Passovers. He does earthly ministry for three years. And his third ministry, Passover, which is just before his death, can be dated then, accordingly, to April the 10th, AD 32. This means that the previous Sunday is the Sunday of our Matthew 21 passage. The previous Sunday is the Sunday where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and that Sunday would be dated April the 6th, AD 32, 173,880 days after King Artaxerxes declares the rebuilding of Jerusalem. You understand the significance of this prophecy? You understand the significance of Jesus riding on this Beast of burden on the day that he did. This is a moment of incredible prophetic finalization. This is a moment of fulfillment, just because Jesus came to fulfill all that the Old Testament said about him and his being the Messiah. And so then the next question is: Jesus enters in. What does he enter into accomplish? This is where we start to wrestle with the expectation. See, according to this prophecy, this is what Jesus enters into accomplish. Jesus' kingship, here's what it brought. It brought salvation through his righteousness. This is what Jesus does. He brings in, he enters into Jerusalem, and he brings salvation, and he brings in salvation not by bearing a sword, but he brings salvation through his righteousness. Verse 9, back to the um, Zechariah passage, chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. When it says that he's righteous, this is pointing to his perfection. To be righteous means that you are in right relationship with God. You see, Jesus' righteousness, it's ultimately seen in his perfect life. And then, understand this, in his sacrificial death. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one who lived a perfect life, and he enters into Jerusalem, and he says, I am going to lay down my perfect life to pay for your imperfection. I am going to be beaten and crucified, and I am going to bleed so that you can have the forgiveness of sins. See, the righteousness is seen in Jesus in his sacrificial death. He brings salvation through righteousness. This means the salvation is seen in his victorious resurrection. Salvation would not exist if Jesus were simply crucified, buried, and he stayed in the grave. You notice every time Jesus predicted his his crucifixion, what did he say? He says, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised by the power of God. See, Jesus, he brings salvation through his victorious resurrection. This resurrection vindicated his identity as the one and only Messiah. He was raised from the dead. This is what he brought to Israel, and this is what he brings to you and I today. He brings a salvation through righteousness. And ultimately, this is meant to bring peace. Amen. See, Jesus' kingship, it was meant to bring Peace. If you look at verse ten of that Zephaniah pa- or Zechariah passage, it says that he is going to cut off the chariot. He's going to cut off the war horse. He's going to cut off the battle bow. He's going to speak peace, and his rule is going to cover the entire earth. This means that when Jesus entered in, he didn't come in ready for battle as we would consider battle. He didn't come in with chariots and war horse and battle bow and sword. He came in to bring peace, and he came in to bring peace by offering himself as a sacrifice sacrifice for our sin. This is prophecy at work. This is prophecy fulfilled. This is part of why we have such great confidence in Jesus as the Messiah. But our text continues now, and this is where we're going to start to get to the nitty-gritty, the expectation of the people, these crowds that swarmed around Jesus. See, we have this preparation as Jesus enters in. We have this fulfilled prophecy as Jesus enters in. And now we have the praise of the king's entrance. The, the crowd just there. This is like the greatest moment ever. Listen to verses six through nine. It says, the disciples, they went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And Jesus, he sat on them. Not, not on the donkey and the colt. He sat on the cloaks, right? Verse eight. It says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others, they cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is why we call it Palm Sunday, right? They cut off the palm branches, they laid it before Jesus. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Now, what do you picture when you think about these crowds? Do you picture a couple dozen people? Maybe a hundred, maybe two hundred, maybe a maybe thousand? Well, during the Passover in Jerusalem, historians said there could be up to two million people gathered there in that city. This is not a small crowd. This is not a hundred thousand people in a football stadium. This is a throng of People gathered around, crowding around, swarming around him. And they're I mean, it's almost like they're losing their minds in jubilation as they as they cry out and as they praise Jesus as their king. Listen to the kind of praise they give. First of all, they praise the salvation of the king. Look at that word, Hosanna. The word Hosanna means the Lord saves, or it means Lord save us. It could be either one depending on the context. So, these people, as they're singing, as they're yelling out Hosanna, they're either crying out, Jesus save us, or they're crying out, Jesus saves, or the Lord saves. See, this is where we start to see their expectation. They are eagerly anticipating the salvation that their king is bringing. Now, let me ask you were they singing the Lord saves because they were all just so eager knowing that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to be crucified? Is that why they were singing? Nope. Why are they singing? Well, this is The nation of Israel gathered on one of their holy weeks and they're gathered to to remember the Passover and their king is coming. And and their expectation of their Messiah, their expectation of their king, their expectation of this, this anointed one that he would enter into Jerusalem. And you know what their hope is? That he is going to raise an army. He is going to rally the troops he is going to, with his charisma and his leadership and his strength and his power, he's going to rally all of Israel and all of Israel is going to rise up and they are going to rebel against the Romans that are their authority, against the Romans who are their oppressors, against the Romans who torment and terrorize them, against the Romans who collect taxes from them. This is This is the praise that is on their lips. The Lord is going to save us from the Romans. The Lord is going to fix our lives. Hosanna. See, they begin, they praise the salvation of the king. But then secondly, you see that they praise the lineage of the king. Notice what they sing about Jesus. They say, Hosanna to who? To the son of David. Now, you Bible scholars in the room, you probably know that Jesus' dad's name was not David. Is this just a case of mistaken identity? Are they like, they don't know who Jesus' dad really is? No, this son of David is a title. See, King David was the second king over Israel, and he was the king that God made a promise to. And the promise is that there would be a descendant of David who would have an everlasting kingdom, that a descendant of David would always sit on the throne and would always rule and reign over the nation of Israel. When they are calling Jesus the King of David, they're saying that you are the promised king. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that we've been praying for. You're the one that we've been longing for. This is a praise because they're saying that he is he is the legitimate king of Israel. And the third thing that they praise, praise the authority of the king. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look, look at this church. They're not just saying that Jesus is the legitimate heir to the kingship because of David and his lineage. They're saying that Jesus is the one who has been sent by God. This is their expectation that God Himself has sent Jesus and that all of their hope, all of their dreams, all of their expectation are built on Jesus coming and fixing their lives. That's their expectation. Now, I want you to see two things here. And this is, this is the linchpin of everything I want to share today. First of all, they have the right theology. I want you to understand that everything they sang, everything they shouted was spot on. If there's a, if there's a theological target, they hit the bullseye. Over and over again. Everything they said about Jesus is exactly two. They had the right theology. But here's the other part of this. They had the wrong expectations. They had the wrong expectations. They had great theology and terrible application. They had the wrong expectations of who Christ was, what was their expectation? Here's their expectation. They expected a conquering king. This was their expectation. They expected a Jesus, to mar- Jesus to march into Jerusalem and to chase the Romans out. That, that, that was their expectation. What did Jesus do after his triumphal entry? Well, if you read, you'll find that he ends up cleansing the temple, chasing out the money changers. After that, he dodges questions from the religious leaders about his authority and the nature of his authority. Then he's questioned by them about whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar. He doesn't give them the quote that they're looking for, right? They're looking for some relief from taxes or looking to trap Jesus. He doesn't do that for them. Then he, then he, makes, he, he speaks to them in more parables to confuse those who are already confused about he, who he is. And then, get this, you know what he does? He rebukes and exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who would have been his closest allies in their rebellion against Rome. (laughs) He does the opposite of everything they expect him to do. They expected a conquering king. What did they find? Instead of finding a conquering king, they encountered a crucified king. That's what they encountered. Instead of raising an army, Jesus is betrayed by one of his disciples. Not only is he betrayed, but he's falsely arrested. He's accused with lies. He's he's mocked. And in fact, at one moment when, when one of the trials is happening the crowd is gathered and there are probably some of the same people that were in that throng of people that were crying out hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord but now because jesus has not fulfilled their expectations instead of crying blessed is he you know what they cry crucify him crucify him he's beaten he's led outside the city limits He's, he's mocked as he's nailed to a cross and then he's hung up on that cross until he breathes his last just like he said he was going to do. They encountered not a conquering king but a crucified king. Here's the million dollar question today. What is it you're expecting of Jesus? Jesus? What is it that you expect from him in your life? See, the first century Jews, they expected this conquering king. They expected him to come and fix all of their problems, to protect them from all kind of difficulty, to be the savior in only a physical sense. Sometimes I think we do the same exact thing. We often expect an intervention from Jesus that conquers all of our problems, We're like Jesus' disciples at one point when they go up to him and they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask of you to do. Here's my list. What is it you expect of Jesus? Are you you expecting Jesus to provide financial well being and health for you? you? Are you expecting him to make you wealthy? Are you expecting Jesus to, I don't know, fix your spouse or to fix your kids? Are you expecting Jesus to uh, make sure the Mariners make the playoffs this year? Oh, wait, that's just me, okay. (laughs) Do your expectations define who Jesus is? Or is who Jesus is what defines your expectations? You see, when we go about it the first way, when we go to Jesus saying, Jesus, these are my expectations, this is my list of all the things that I want you to fix in my life, when we approach him that way, in that moment, he is not the Lord, we are. Now, hear me clearly. This doesn't mean you shouldn't pray for your needs This does not mean that you should not hope for good things. This does not mean the Lord is stingy and he's going to withhold anything good from your life. But what it does mean is that we need to constantly be examining our expectations. Are we falling into the same trap as those first century Israelites who expected Jesus to come and fix all of their problems when he had such a better purpose in mind? See, when we we come to Jesus, we expect this intervention that conquers our problems, but here's what we find we always find an invitation to crucifixion. I want us just to remember what the Christian life involves. Does God provide? Absolutely. Does God care, without a doubt, more than we realize? But the Christian life is not, Jesus, I'm coming to you, and here's my list of all the things I want you to do for me. The Apostle Paul, when he encountered Jesus Christ, he was radically transformed. He went from being a persecutor and a murderer of Christians to being an evangelist and church planner. But listen to these words. The first book the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here's what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. He says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, in Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the expectation for the Christian. Our expectation is not, Jesus, give me health and give me wealth. Jesus, make my life easy and trouble-free. Jesus, make sure the world loves me and everyone likes me. Jesus, I expect you to to be okay with however I live my life, whatever pursuits I have. Jesus, I expect you to protect me from every kind of evil whatsoever. If that's our expectation, then Jesus failed that school this week. That's not meant to be our expectation, church. The expectation we have, what we find when we come and we trust in Jesus, that he loves us, that he died for us, and that he was resurrected on the third day. The expectation we have is that we have a completely transformed life where you and I, we say the exact same thing the Apostle Paul says. I have been, say it with me, crucified with Christ. It's no longer about me. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives through me. This means, this isn't in your notes, but I added one final point. This means that we also find an invitation to countercultural living. See, this is, church, this is the answer to the tension, at least in my heart. Over this last week, as I've grieved, and I've prayed, and I've just sat, Looking at a wall and thinking, right? Like, what is our response? See, the response isn't that we copy the culture and their response to these issues. The response is we copy Christ. And Christ is countercultural. See here. Here's the knee-jerk reaction, and maybe this is maybe this is just one of these describes me more than the other. But listen, the knee-jerk reaction that I had is maybe I just need to get my soapbox and set it up on stage and step onto it, and then I need to preach about all the things that are true that the world just not does not get, and I need to bring my pointer finger and I need to point out all of the wrong thinking that exists in our world today, because darn it, we have truth, and they need to know what's true. Maybe that's your response in moments like that. Or maybe your response is on the other side of the spectrum where you say, well, you know what, we should just we just got to love more and we just got to care more and we just need to show more grace. And, and, and may, maybe that was a response of genuine care and genuine love for those who are outside of Christ and those who are wrong, right? But in that care, we well, that means if we're going to love them well, we have to avoid the hard topics and we have to kind of like, just like, you know, soft gloves around them. And we got to let them know that, you know what, they're fine even if they choose to live a sinful lifestyle, right? and sometimes that's how we respond in those moments but a countercultural response a countercultural response does not pick this end of the spectrum and ignore that end or and it does not pick this end of the spectrum and ignore that end a countercultural response is to live like Christ John chapter 1:14 says this it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as the only Son begotten of the Father, and here's what it says, full of grace and truth. This is the countercultural response that is required of us today, church. The countercultural response is not just to point out all the evils of the world in disdain. And the countercultural response is not to allow the world to think the way they're living is okay and just ignore the wrong. The countercultural response is found in grace and in truth. Now, if you hear that, and you struggle with that, maybe you lean to the truth side of things a little hard. Maybe you lean to the grace side of things a little hard. Here's the call today. The call is to set aside your Expectations. Set aside your expectations that truth and just pointing at people and they're wrong is going to fix things. Set aside your expectations that just tapping people on the shoulder and saying everything's okay and and not dealing with the the issue at hand is is the response. Instead, the, the response for us today is to expect that Christ will work through us with his grace and his truth. I hope that serves you today. I hope that brings a little bit of a balm to the wound that I think most of us felt this last week. And I hope that reminds you to constantly examine the expectations you have of Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to be not just those who have the right theology who sing the right songs, who preach the word correctly. Help us to be those who have the right expectations. Father, we, God, we grieve by the brokenness of this world. God, we grieve over the evil this past week. Father, we pray for that school and for the church connected with it and for all the believers in in Nashville, Tennessee that that are so near to this tragedy we ask that you would bring comfort and that you would bring hope. We know that you can use all things for good that you promised to, and so we ask that you would do just that. In the same way, Lord, we come to you and we confess that sometimes our expectations are wonky. We expect you to be fixing our the externals of our life and we forget that your kingdom is not of this world. So Father, I pray that today you would lovingly call us back to seeing Christ as how he is revealed in the scriptures. Father, I pray you would help us to turn away from letting our expectations define Christ and instead we will allow Christ to be the one who defines what we should expect. And I pray that as you do this, Lord, that we would be able to confidently and in peace live this life full of grace and truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.